1: Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, we're talking with Liliana Reyes. Growing up in a tight knit Mexican family with her parents and older brother, Liliana was shaped by principles of faith and feminism. She witnessed racial tensions in her hometown of Saginaw, but also saw her parents' acceptance of others, including their gay friends. She was raised to believe you can do anything you want in life if you work for it. Liliana is a trans-Latina woman who has extensive history working with marginalized populations, including people of color, women, LGBTQ communities. HIV-positive communities, and most importantly, youth and all their intersections. Shortly after her 18th birthday, while attending University of michigan Flint, her mother found all her girl clothes and makeup. Her parents had always been accepting of others, including members of the LGBTQ community. They were pretty open, she says, but having a gay child is a lot different from having gay friends. After this coming out, she had very little contact with her parents for the next two years. During those two years, she transitioned, and by the time she was 19 years old, she was legally female. She changed the gender marker on her state identification and her name. Liliana has a bachelor's degree in anthropology, sociology, and history, with minors in international and global studies and women's and gender studies. She went on to earn a master's degree in public administration focused in nonprofit leadership and is also a certified substance abuse prevention specialist. Liliana considers herself privileged because unlike many transgender people, she has always had a job. We've all been in social justice arena. Liliana has worked at Planned Parenthood and has served many oppressed communities by working to create positive change in the areas of domestic violence, racism, HIV, and substance abuse. She started speaking out on LGBTQ issues in college. She's worked her entire adult life to make the world a better, safer space for the community and others. She is a founding mother and sitting board member of the Trans Sisters of Color project and believes understanding and dissecting the high level of murders of trans women of color to be a critical area of focus. Liliana was featured in USA's Today's Faces of Pride Project that featured members of the LGBTQ community and their allies from all 50 states. She has worked with many state and national civil rights organizations, including Planned Parenthood, National Organization of Women, transgender Michigan and NAACP. She's currently the program services director at Affirmations, Metro Detroit's (laughs) community center for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people and their allies. As a graduate of University of Michigan Rackham Graduate School with a master's in public administration and her experience of being a transgender Latina woman has allowed her to utilize personal lessons along with her academic career to create a culture of youth empowerment, encouraging diversity in all endeavors. Empowering marginalized people through education and advocacy is her lifelong goal. Liliana, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm so happy to have you here. How are you doing today?
2: I am doing really well. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here.
1: I tell you, you know, I remember, and I don't even know if you remember, I mean, and it was <laughs> a while, 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 long, long, long time ago. I was in Saginaw, and Leo Romo introduced me to you, and you were just, like, sort of quiet. You know, I mean, you know, I remember, I remember like, I remember, like, oh, and like, and he was, like, talking about how, what a nice a sweet person you were and in fact he referred to you as like like being like a daughter to him and then i mean a few years later like it was like here you were in detroit and i'm going like i know her and i mean i'm reading all these things about your your academic credentials and stuff but you are like he said one of the nicest people that you can Aww. that i know
2: thank you thank you michelle that means a lot
1: Oh, so Saginaw. Okay. Are you Sag nasty? Yeah. Good.
2: Good. Let's use that. Oh, okay. Uh
1: you know, um, the first time I heard that I know Michelle Johnson who lives in uh Kalamazoo, who's originally from Saginaw. She said, you know, mm-hmm. we're Sag nasty and I said, Oh, okay <laughs> We are, we totally are that. I
2: I would agree.
1: How much how much does Saginaw form who you are today?
2: Yes. And to be honest, I've done tons of interviews, and met few people have asked me that. And I sometimes wish people would ask me more of that. So Saginaw has completely shaped my life. Um, I grew up in a small township in Saginaw called Buena Vista. And originally, for the most part, Buena Vista was built for the workers of Delphi. We, Our neighborhood was directly behind Delphi. My dad was a Delphi worker and graduated, um, retired from GM. Um, and so the whole town was full of people who were working class people. Most of them were black and brown people, so black or African American and Mexican.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
2: what was unique about my experience growing up in Buena Vista in Saginaw was my understanding of strong women of color leaders. So, in my high school, and actually all of my school career, from middle school all the way up, I went to public uni- public schools, and um, there were always specifically Black women that were leaders, and there was a Black woman superintendent and principals and teachers. So, my my identity was shaped by. Very strong, very beautiful, very intelligent, college educated black women. And that is unique to many people. Um, I was there weren't a lot of Mexican people um, in my school. Um, they were in the neighborhood, but not a lot in the school. And I was shaped with the understanding of racial justice. I was shaped with the understanding, the awareness, and the the acceptance of beauty of the African culture. And so we talked about black history all year not just in February but we also talked about Mexican history because my principal was really big in diversity and diversity among people of color and so I saw beauty differently I saw beauty as full-figured big thick beautiful hair and so when I graduated and went into the world and I realized like everything that I had known to be is completely different and I felt really privileged because of that
1: you know I think that that's interesting I was at um, the Lux Medical Center, and um, uh-huh. I want to say like last last year during African uh, Black History Month, and I went up there for Black History Month, and we were talking about it. And you know, you know me being that nerd, always looking around, and <laughs> also having you know having knowing that there is a large Latino community and a large a history of Latino <laughs> uh, of a Latino community in Michigan, I happened to yeah. bring it up, and. The audience I was primarily like there are a lot of African Americans, but there were some Latino people who say like you know often people forget that we're here you know and yes. that you know and I was like no and and you know we start talking about different things that I remember growing up with different when you come down here where we have like you know people many people often think too the Latino community in Michigan is Southwest Detroit you know no yes uh, yeah. But um, how was that different? Well, coming from there, where, like you said, you had uh, you had your community around you, but you know yeah. many of the least you saw were strong African Americans, and then to come down here where you have a district which is like strongly Latino. <clears throat> So I feel like there's, there's a pieces of it that are
2: bittersweet. So the, the sweet part of it is that it's really beautiful to see, like, Mexican town, Southwest Detroit, and not just Mexican town because Southwest Detroit has so many other different Latino populations, and it's really beautiful to see the businesses that are owned by Latino people and the things that they do with Southwest Solutions and all the other community orgs. I think it's so beautiful. The difference, though, is that when you have more space, you can be more divided. And so because Detroit Metro is so big, there are these little pockets of people um and there are of course, all different people that live within those pockets, but with, in Saginaw it's everything in Saginaw is five to ten minutes away, and mm-hmm. so people in Detroit say down the street and they're down the street is like ten miles down the street. down the street <laughs> in Saginaw is literally a block away so it's 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 harder to Like you have to travel so many – you travel really, really far in order to get to those different pockets of people. So if you're going to go from Hamtramck to Dearborn to Southwest, like those are long distances in between, and I think sometimes that it can create division while creating unity among it. And within Saginaw, there was just not much space. And so everybody goes to the Cinco de Mayo Parade. I think there are probably more non-Mexicans that go to the Cinco de Mayo Parade every year in Saginaw than Mexicans. So it's really, it's really beautiful to see so much. And in my neighborhood... There were a lot of biracial families. So most of my friends were black and Mexican. So you literally see the blending of two beautiful cultures coming together, mm-hmm. and then you kind of live with that, where you see it now a little more generationally here in Detroit. But, I mean, my whole life I've I've known biracial people, where I know a lot of the people I'm working with in Detroit. Like it's kind of a new thing, like, oh, my cousin now does it. And so you're like, wow, (laughs) they're just now doing
1: it? Like, okay, (laughs) we've
2: been, it it was different.
1: And I understand exactly what you're talking about, how you have a a tight-knit family and Mm -hmm. there's faith. I mean, you know, often I'll tell people, you know, like, and I I certainly understand because, you know, I was raised Catholic. I mean, you know, and we were black. Oh, me too. Hey, you know, I mean, the first gay person I remember meeting, was at my grandmother's table, and it was okay. Okay, that mm-hmm. was okay, and there was that you know loving everybody and the faith and everything, until I said, oh by the way, you know? right? Me too. <laughs> you know, you know until, oh oh by the way, you know, I assure you, sure you can't be you know how. But at the same point, you said that you had, you felt the love, but you had that two yes. years of sort of. I guess sort of finding your way back to each other. Yes. It.
2: So yes, that's absolutely true, and, I, and I, I'm glad that you captured that because I think that sometimes when we talk about parents' acceptance, it gets really polar. It's like you either accept them and you, or you don't. And in reality, for many people of color, that's just not how it works. There's like, there's there's these steps that people have to graduate to sometimes. And my family always loved me. And even when even when I came out or when I was dragged out the closet, because you're right, my mom found all my stuff. When I was dragged out the closet, if if I would I would never say that I was homeless because I chose to leave the house. Like we we it was a really bad environment and I chose to leave. But I was never kicked out. And so. If, if for any reason I got into any issue, I know that I could have called my parents and they would have definitely supported me because for them this was a piece of me that they couldn't support, but they still wanted me to, like, be okay. And then after so long, I really had to think about, like, well, where are they coming from? Um, and then once my, my family and I talked, it was more, they were more afraid for my safety, mm-hmm. um, which, which, which makes sense because, in Saginaw, when I was growing up, like I, I talked about that amazing beauty and the diversity. But my when my mom was growing up, when they first moved to the the where, where my mom and dad where my dad still lives at now, um, there was a lot of racism and there was a lot of white farmers in that area. Cause Saginaw's a big farm town. There was a lot of white farmers that would like pull guns on my family, and my family ended up having ended up having to get guns and dogs and. So my mom was like, she was like, I remember going through that, and I can only imagine what's going to happen to you. You're a Mexican person, first and foremost, and now you're a trans person and a gay person. Like, people kill people like that. And so I had to realize that her apprehension was based on real-life mother fears that were just natural. Um, And then after talking to her about, like, her actions not being supportive of who she is, I think it took a while, but we finally got
1: to that point. That is so phenomenal because I think that that's often what, it's a journey. And I mean, uh, mm-hmm. and and we can sometimes, you know, draw that line real harshly and sort of say, well, you know, because I, I remember seeing in a film where it was like the new black. And they had a scene oh, yeah. where this young woman, she goes and she says, you know, and, uh, and, the, and her foster mother's like, okay, you know, I love you and I'll get to that. And she was like, you know, I want her to accept all of me. And sometimes it just doesn't happen, and that part that you recognize um, to be able to have those conversations with it. I know that that was one of the. I mean, it's like it's almost like your mother is my mother because I was, at one point we had, and <laughs> I'm like, why were you so mean to me? And she and she was like, I just didn't want you to be hurt. It's a mean yes. world, and yes. to find a way to navigate that, you know, that is just like so hard. You do a lot of work with young people. Yeah. Do you ever, like, sort of, you know, sit back and, like, I know you're the found, one of the founding mothers of trans sisters of color, but do you ever have that moment where you have to put on your mother's cloak and say, you know, yeah. you are okay, time. you know?
2: all the time. I think that my passion for youth comes because I've worked with so many youth that have so many amazing talents and dreams and hopes and real chance of building those dreams into real sustainable futures, and it's just they need support. And so I am am a woman of color, and so I'm a strong woman of color, so I believe in that hard mothering, and I will be – I've, I've given – random youth hugs. I remember I when um, they were talking about Michigan schools working with trans youth and allowing them to identify and use the bathrooms, and they were having those, those commission meetings, and there were random youth that would get up and speak, and they would be traumatized by all the hate in this room, and I would go up and give them hugs, particularly because I think that Youth need support, but youth also need people to be real with them, and I think that's the other aspect to the motherness that I'm, I do with a lot of the youth. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say, like, it's going to be awesome. Like, it may not be, though. It may be really difficult, and it's going to be hard, but you have to be prepared for that. There are going to be times where you can't talk about who you are because you just you need services, and that's a really crappy thing, but it is life. And so there are a lot of times I have to have very serious conversations with our youth, like if you want access to spaces, this is how you do it. And if you want to push those boundaries, awesome, but sometimes you can push them to a place where now you're not included and now you don't, not only is your voice not heard, but you don't get services. And if you're homeless, if you're hungry, you just need basic services. So I... I sometimes have those hard conversations with them that are all part of love, and I really do think that many of the youth respect that. And they come to me later on, because um, as I'm getting older, more and more youth are coming to me, and some of them are in college, and they're like, you know, you were right. Or um, I realize that that's the environment that I had that, that I had to thrive in, and I had to survive in. And so I really want youth to. Be everything that they know that they can be, and I just want to be that support for them, but I also want to be that that realist that realist to say, well, maybe that's not quite how life is
1: now you know um you talked briefly about about your parents' concern, and you know I remember when we were we did the panel for the u n association, and one of the things that i I had asked you was because um how is it? living, I mean, you know, and I think that, you know, you live unapologetically, you live boldly. I Thank mean, you, you are you are a strong woman, you know, you are a strong, <laughs> Thank and, and, and I'm going to put it out there, you're a strong, beautiful woman. But, Thank you. You know, but we know that just by, when you go to a transgender day of remembrance, when you hear how many black and brown names are out there, that you walking in your truth, in some way have an invisible target on your back. How do you walk with that? And then, like you said, when you go and you talk to to young people, to not only make them aware, but also encourage them to live their unapologetic selves?
2: Yes. I, You know, sometimes I don't know how I do it, to be honest with you. Sometimes I think <laughs> that people just survive the best way that they know how. Um, and to be honest, so I grew up, again, when you said Catholic, I grew up Catholic. And when I was younger, um, fairly young, I transitioned to be Buddhist, and I've been Buddhist for a really long time now. And I really believe that my religious and spiritual beliefs keep me grounded. Mm-hmm. They keep me hopeful. Um, and, and there's there's something in me that I believe that, I no matter what happens in my life I need to life is life is truly amazing there are so many opportunities and adventures that that anyone can take advantage of but it's scary and you're right like when I go to the gas station or when I go to a corner store I there are I do get a little nervous because if someone knows that I'm trans like I you're right I'm more likely to be jumped on than someone else and it depending on the demographic but it it is really It's scary, but there's also this sense of I have this life, and I only have one life um, that I know of, and I want to make sure that I live that to the fullest. So if I'm afraid to go somewhere, and I definitely understand those fears, I don't want to let it cripple me. And I believe in doing whatever I need to do to get what I need, and that's jobs, that's just going to the grocery store and then advocating for people like me and not like me so that they, we can all do it within our own little circles so that our circles keep growing and eventually they touch each other, and now it's a big space of safety and not just pockets of safety.
1: Now, you know, and there are some really, I mean, and I, I love there are some really fierce, Latina trans women who are leading the charge. You know, yeah. uh, there are some really fierce African-American trans women who yep. are leading the charge. You know, who are, I mean, who just, they're not taking a back seat to anything. You know, right. you are out there. Do you feel that responsibility to be a very public person? Yes.
2: Yeah. I feel like it is my I feel like it is my duty to speak up and speak boldly um about who I am and what I believe um and I really got that from my mother. My mother was and it's it's interesting because a lot of the words that mo- that a lot of people in social justice use my mom wouldn't know those words. She wasn't formally educated outside of high school. And so and that was what the beauty is to me, that someone can believe everything without having the jargon but do it. And so I saw my mom relentlessly speak to, like, I've seen her get into arguments with her mother about feeding homeless people. And I remember her mom was like, they're going to jump on you, they're going to rape you. And she was like, no, they're hungry, and that's the difference. And mm-hmm. I remember her going, and she was a five-one. 105 pound Mexican lady Going in, I remember In the winter to feed two men Who she never met because it wasn't About her safety, it was more about the Needs of the people who she saw And she spoke up very boldly Against racism and Women's rights and pro-choice Movement and so seeing her Do that unapologetically led Me to believe that that is what you do You stand up for people, you never allow People to take the back seat Even if that means that you might have inflicted upon you I feel like it's my duty because if it's not me um, and it's other people that's not okay I need to share some of that because the only reason that I was able to do anything is because another trans person either laid down their lives or uplifted their voice so that I can do what I need to do so I want to continue that
1: one of the greatest things I mean which unfortunately, like my mother and I were cool. My father, you know, we were okay. I mean, we we, we came to a place in the end. But one of the the things that that I found after he passed was in going through his belongings was that he kept track of the things that I did. And in some way, I mean, like even my mother had said, you know, like, Maybe she didn't understand or, or initially agree with my choices, but she recognized that I was still that child she had raised. Does your mother <laughs> see where you got that fighter from her? She did. Um, my mom, when
2: me and her, um, after we kind of, found our way back to each other um we talked we had a lot of long talks a lot of long real hard talks that I never thought we would have and she said you know you're just like me she and she said mm. to be honest she was like you're a bitch just like me you stand up for what you believe in no matter what anyone says and she was like I've never been more proud of you because in her mind no one should ever stand up to her And she was like, and she most definitely believed that her child, who she brought into this world, should never disrespect her by standing up to her, but she said, if you were able to do that, then you're really ready for this world, and I am so proud of you. Like, she used to always tell me, I am so proud of you. Uh, My mom ended up getting to a point where she became a social activist for LGBT people, where it was was actually a little annoying, where she would call (laughs) me every day and be like, hey, did you see this? Movie, did you see this policy that's happening? We need to do something about this. And I'm like, it's nine o'clock in the morning. I'm trying to sleep, mom. I'm like, not now. So she, and it, the way that she did it is she. It's funny because when, when we talk to people about how you change your world, she believed in changing her personal world. So she was a part of the mm-hmm. Knights of the Columbus, which are very Christian, usually very conservative, and she would go in there and talk about LGBT people need to be married, LGBT people need rights, and women should be able to have abortions because it's their body and who should tell them. And she would do it so much that people would just be like, you know what? Okay, fine. And she really shaped a lot of her circles. <laughs> Even when she was the only one speaking, and i I would look at her and be like, "I couldn't do that and so when she found that I inherited that she was she was proud because she was like, "Yes, there's another one of me in this world um
1: you know so <laughs> you you were you went to school and you uh-huh. studied and you learned, and you did a lot. Did you see education as your pathway away from the life in Saginaw or uh, as that door to that broader world you wanted to impact and change?
2: At first, um, education was mandated by my parents. It was it was interesting. I remember when I was going through high school and there were some kids that were like, yeah, I'm probably going to graduate. And in my head, graduation was never an option. I was afraid that if I didn't graduate, I don't know what would have happened to me. Like my parents were not, did not play about education. Um, I couldn't get anything less than a B. If I got a C, I would be grounded. Like they were very serious about education. And so it was it was like a must, like the way that people get up and the way that some people get up and go to work every day, it was a must that I had to go to college. There was no, my mom was like either college or the military, and I was not fighting in the military. Mm -hmm. And she, so when, when I initially went to college, I had no clue what I wanted to be. Um, And then college ended up becoming a safe haven for me. It was a place where I could be authentically me. It was a place that I could learn about who I was, where I wasn't this anomaly where I was a person that was caught up in this social world that was evolving and that was built off capitalism and gender rigidity and so it allowed me to to be able to understand the world and where I fit in and from that uh, because college was hard Uh, when I first got in college I came from an unaccredited high school I had a lot of reading and writing issues, and it took some really amazing teachers, some professors, to say, no, you have something here that we need to pull out. And I had to do extra classes and go to writing seminars. And it allowed me to to, to understand that my voice was important, and the things that my mom had taught me, I was given vocabulary and theoretical discussion about. And so it, allo- it really gave me the opportunity to be me and to figure out what I believed in and
1: why. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the other thing is how you said that you always had a job. You know, you always had a job, and so you know that's just what you do. You know, um, yeah. and, and I know that that education helped you do it in fields that you you like. But how important was that aspect of it too? That you always had a job, but you were working your way as you were learning your way.
2: Yes. So my parents, um, again, Mexican, very hard workers. My dad was a migrant worker. He picked um, zucchinis and strawberries for like Mm -hmm. nearly his whole life until he got in the plant. His mom did it. His family did it. That's how our family was able to come to Saginaw from Mexico because they were doing migrant work. And so hard work. Was always instilled in us. When my dad went into the um, GM and Delphi and the Gray Iron and Saginaw, he would work like seven days a week, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day. He worked to make sure his family had what they needed. When my mom had to work, she would work 24 hours a day, five days a week in an elder facility. And so It was given to us that you work for everything, no matter what it is. And we did, there was no shame in work. So whether you worked at McDonald's or whether you were a lawyer, you worked. You made sure you were a productive member of society and that you provided for your family. And so when I was 16, my mom was like, awesome, great, you need to work. Either you work or you get a 4.0. And a 4.0 was a little was a little high for me. I was at like a 3.2, so I'm like, let me just get a job. And so I got a job, and, she, and it was weird. Once I got a job, my mom was like, okay, we'll pay for more stuff. And I'm like, but what's the purpose of me getting a job? And she said, responsibility. You are not ever going to get a free ride in this world, and you have to work for everything that you have. And if you start a family, then you're going to have to do what your dad does, woman or not. You have to do it. And so – When I was going through college, I was a housekeeper, and I've worked at Speedway. I've done all kinds of work. um, And to me, it was about putting in my time and making sure that – and I really do think it built me to be the person I was. There are people that go to college that don't have to work. must be nice, but I don't know what that's like. But I think that it gave me a fighting spirit that I had to work very, very, very hard, to get my degrees because there was a there was a moment where I was actually on academic probation where I was going to get kicked out because I was trying to find who I was and I didn't know what I wanted to study and I just couldn't I could my biggest fear was going back to my parents saying I got kicked out of college like I don't know what would have happened if I said that
1: Do you find you know and it just it just makes my blood boil as you listen to this immigration debate and you know and I often tell people, you know, I when I was a kid, I knew Latino families because every summer we went on, we stayed with an aunt who lived in western Michigan, and part of what we did was we would be out there and I would meet people because we'd be helping pick berries uh-huh. and, and pick and yeah. things like that. And I knew kids oh, no. who came here. And you know their education was interrupted because they had to be a part of this family unit. And they people who worked hard, and they were looking. And then later on, they went on in a couple generations down, just like in your family. Here you are in this immigration debate. When you hear them talk about it, particularly since they have painted a brown face on it and say and yeah. imply that everyone is climbing across from from Mexico. And, you know, and somehow are stealing these jobs. Do you ever just want to just sort of, like, go off and tell them about your family history and what that hard work ethic, how it yes. attributes to you being the person you are now?
2: Yes. And, and it, it's, it's frustrating because Mexicans are taking the jobs no one else wants. And so it's like you, don't, you chose not to take these jobs that we're taking, and then you're upset because we got the job so really it's just it's just another face of racism, and it's, it's, it is, it's, it's really disheartening to see and to hear, because, like I said, my grandfather was born in Mexico, and my gran- he married my grandmother when she was fourteen. My grandmother, at fourteen years old, was fourteen or fifteen she was, she started she got pregnant, My dad was born on, in a barn on the the farm that they were working. Um, His birth certificate says, like, such farmer, some such, such barn. Like, it's it's you can't even go to the actual town to get it. You have to go through some weird stuff to get his birth certificate. And so I remember, so coming from that, coming from nothing, having farmers say all kinds of horrible racist stuff to my family who helped them become rich because they were picking things for them that Mm -hmm. they didn't want to do. And... It's it's weird because, like, my father used to tell me they loved undocumented workers because they could pay them less and pay them under the mm-hmm. table. And so, like, the fact that they're taking advantage of, underage, of, of, of undocumented workers who are making them rich but then treating them horribly, but then you hear these ridiculous stories about Mexicans coming over here and killing people, and I have undocumented people in my family, and all they want to do is send their kids to school and be good mothers. And they go to church, and they work hard, and that's it. They don't come over here to, to, to do horrible things. They come over here to get away from horrible things. And my family has given me – so. my family has worked harder than most families would ever understand. And so that's disheartening to hear people who come from privilege um, – say, because usually it's white rich men that are saying these mm-hmm. things, coming from privilege, saying that these horrible people are taking opportunities, where really we made our own opportunities, and it's like you're upset because we made them.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're going to take our first break here, and, I mean, I'm learning so much about you, but but it also sounds like, you know, I'm talking to my sister. I mean, it's just amazing. <laughs> well, so. We will be right back. This is our first break here on Collections by Michelle Brown. My guest today is Liliana Reyes, and we will be right back.
0: This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com.
1: and we are back. Liliana, I mean, this is just like there are so many things about you that are so bold and amazing. You know, like the Thank fact that you you, you went in and and handled your business like, you know, during that <laughs> two year, I mean, you, you were you weren't fooling around during that two years. You went you did everything. You had your gender marker on your state identification. Um you changed your name. Uh, now, I know I was reading that you kept part of it out of, to honor the family members that you were name, made out of. But you were like, you know, I know who I am, and I am yeah. going to live my life. Um, mm-hmm. And you did all this. I mean, and, you know, and people, I mean, you were 18, 19, and, you know, and although they're, they're, you might be able to vote or whatever at 18, really, you're still growing. You're A still baby. Yeah. Are you? You know, but you had that determination to do that. Hmm. Roz Keith. And she said that uh-huh. people often, she'd say that people would tell her, um, well, maybe they're not sure. Maybe they should wait a little longer. And she spends a great deal of time talking to people, telling them about, you know, your child knows what your child knows. And the thing is to support and back them up. You knew. I did. How you? How do you then, in your interactions with people, when you have someone come in and, you know, do you explain to them or try to help them navigate what their child is going through? Or if they're an adult, I mean, who are, are you know, cause some, how do you help them navigate that pathway to, to being themselves, living authentically? Living. Yes.
2: So I yes i've always known I was young i i didn't necessarily know that I wanted to be a woman because I think that that understanding that would understand trans identity so when I was really young i just i knew I was a young boy, but I also knew that I was very effeminate and my parents allowed me to to be gender a little bit gender neutral where I was playing with girl stuff and boy stuff so I had a space where I was able to be who I was and I never was never called out from my family for being too feminine so it it did give me the ability to have a little bit of, of wiggle room that some people don't. So when I was able to finally figure out, like, actually, you want to be a woman, when I figured out that that was possible, because I grew up in I the only person I ever knew was RuPaul, and I just, I thought she was just mm-hmm. a beautiful trans woman. I didn't know it was possible. So when I found out it was possible for people to live as a trans people, then I was like, that's who I am. And it was – it honestly, I, there wasn't a whole lot of thought. It was – it clicked. Like, that's who mm-hmm. I am. Great. Let's do it. And then I just did it. And I really – I thought I've always been an analytical person, where I thought about pros and cons. But I've never been that analytical person that believes that because there are too many cons, you shouldn't do it. Because I was like, okay, this is going to be hard, and I had to think like, what am I going to do for a job? I don't think anyone's going to hire me. And then I'm like, oh, social justice—that should work. And then I just, I just did it. I, and I, when mm-hmm. I talk to people about it, I'm like, there are people who do like weigh the options. And I think that's important. But some, but sometimes when you do that, you're going to have more cons than pros, and that's not a a good or a bad thing. That's just the way society is. And so I tell people, like, Either you know who you are and you have to figure out what your transition looks like and depending on other people in your circle, like if you're married or you have kids, that's going to change something a little bit. If you're in a violent household, that's going to change your ability, but at some point you have to decide what you're willing to let go to be authentically you and i think that sometimes when people transition the fear of losing something else makes them nervous but in all actuality we lose something no matter who you are you lose something as you grow and you have to be prepared to lose something whether that's family home friends survival food like you're going to lose something and you have to eat. you have to understand that you're going to lose it and then what are you going to do and so when i just figured out yeah, I might might lose my family and a house, which I for the most part did, then you just go along with it and you build support systems and you find other people, chosen family to help you out. And I encourage people, specifically black and brown people have the most beautiful cultures, period, but especially in gay culture, and LGBT culture, because there's this chosen family. There's ballroom scenes that, for some people, that was, that's what keeps them alive. It keeps them hoping. It keeps a belief in them. And that's what got me. I, I was in the ballroom scene. I had gay mothers and gay fathers and gay families. And I, I had gay mothers when I didn't have a real mother. And mm-hmm. that's what kept me hopeful. That's what kept me loved. So that I could go to school, so that I could do all those name changes, which I did all by myself in the town of Saginaw. Um, so yeah, I, I, I talk, when I talk to people, I talk about I talk about it in real terms that you're going to lose something, and you have to be okay with it, and you have to be okay with figuring out what you're okay to lose. Um, but it's hard to be authentically you, no matter who you are.
1: You know, I'm glad you brought it because I was I was wait I was trying to figure out how to. The ballroom scene, like, I mean, I have met many young people. Like you said, it is so important, you know, a part Mm -hmm. of it. For those who aren't totally aware of the ballroom scene, can you explain that? I
2: can. I would love to. Um, So the ballroom scene was made because in the 50s and 60s, many LGBT people, Specifically in the bigger cities like New York, um, there were LGBT people everywhere, but it really kind of happened in New York. There were a lot of LGBT people that were being kicked out of their homes and families in the 50s and 60s and even 70s because you just could not be gay. And it was, it was abnormal for people to accept you. And so when you were kicked out, these were young 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids, um, and they would go to other places. They would go to other gay people who were also kicked out of their home that were a little older, and they became family. They were like, we, we are a family. And because I was, it's like someone would say, because I was kicked out 10 years ago, I know what it's like. I know how to navigate these services. Let me help you. And then those became parents of people. So the, it's really a mentorship program that's built with love and familial status and familial qualities. Um, and and it's interesting because the whole, li- like, people think it's, a, oh, like a club, it's an extracurricular, but for some <laughs> people it's a life, it's a life, because that's all you have. Um, and, again, for those two years, those are really all the only people that I really, truly had were the ballroom scene, and what it was... It was just an underground culture of people of color, specifically Latino and black people, that came together and said we were going to build a community when there was no community for us. When we were shunned out of communities. We built it. And so we built these family structures. We built even things that affected us through racism. So the fact that there's so many low socioeconomic status people that are black and brown, that we don't get to experience a lot of what a lot of people experience. And so... When you think about watching soap operas and the ridiculously richness and all the amazing things they do, it can become a little sad to feel like you can never live up to that. So when you create a culture where you are that, you are the elite, you are the people that create Policies and structures, then you can mimic those. So then you have what the the thing called balls, which all they are are little competitions, friendly competitions Mm -hmm. between. Groups or what we call houses or families, um, and, and you showcase your skill whether that's dance or runway walk or prettiest face or whatever. You showcase the skill, um, and it's always very family focused. There's you, there's a lot of love in there. Even in real families, there can be disagreements and fights. But at the end of the day, I can I like if. I can look at my Facebook and say, oh, I have a sister in Paris because she was a part of the house that I was at. And in those houses, I was a part of the House of Ebony for six or seven years, and it, it was a family status. There were people that I could go to and I told my deepest, darkest secrets to. And it's beautiful to feel like your family is not just blood, but I have family all over the world that experience the things that I've experienced. We've went through things, both gay stuff and family stuff and house stuff and ballroom stuff. And we're connected. So it's like this huge network of people that support you and you have fun with. And sometimes you get work from that. Some balls, you win, you get $1,000. So it Mm -hmm. can be economical. It is familial. It can be work-related. It can be advocacy related ebony did a lot with hiv and aids awareness so it's it, it's this culture that fulfills the needs that people like me when we're pushed out of culture with out of the real society culture
1: it's important to have that i mean and you said like like you said we are a community but we're also a family and within communities you have you know something that's uniquely yours and you. Yes. Uh, and I think that you know and I've seen people and they talk about which which house they're with, and it is it it, it strengthens the community, and I also think that it's good to show that you know you have you have this full rounded life, yes, you know sometimes you can make things right with your family, your biological family, but to have that love and support of a mm-hmm. family that really knows you, you know knows yeah. your journey. And, and, and they and yes, and, and
2: sometimes, so for instance, my gay mother is Janice from Equality Michigan. So Ah, she's someone that's doing the work. She is Mm -hmm. someone that I, when, when life gets hard, when I need advice about being a trans woman of color, I go to her. And she's open and honest and she's a tough loving woman. And she believes in like that support and that guidance and, it, it, the same way that I, when my mother was alive and I used to be able to call her, the same way. And she was around when my mother passed away. Like, she was there. And so when so there are people that go, like, well, how can you call another person a mother? Um, because if, if that's the title that you live up to, then that's the title that you deserve.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it was, um, I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago, and they were like, you know, there aren't that many you know, trans women of color working in, you know, like the big organizations like Equality California, yeah. Equality Florida. And I'm saying, well, you know, in Michigan, we have a, a trans woman of yeah. color who is working with that. You know, you've been with a lot of, of nonprofits. I mean, like you were with Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. with National Organization of, Michigan, of Women, Transgender Michigan, and NAACP. How did you feel you were accepted, and what did you feel you brought to it, and did they get what you were bringing to those organizations?
2: Um, Sometimes, no. Sometimes some of those organizations, to be completely honest with you, use me as a token because it was really Mm -hmm. good on a grant to have a trans woman. The thing is, is that sometimes I bank and hope that people use me as a token so I can get in the door. Um, And then once I'm in, then I push for my agenda. Um, And the good thing is all those organizations supported me. I also definitely think that a lot of the people that I worked with didn't really know how much they supported LGBT people. They knew that they believed people should be um, empowered and supported and no one should have violence against them. But when you start getting nitty-gritty like bathroom laws and and gay marriage, I think people don't know where they stand. But I believe that if you can find common ground with people, then it's, it's, it can be really easy to build bridges. You just have to be prepared that sometimes they may say things that are offensive, but it's not intentional. Um, and so when I was at, so for instance, when I first got in Planned Parenthood, I uh, worked in Battle Creek and Kalamazoo area. Battle Creek is an extremely conservative, um, especially in 2009 when I started started working there it was extremely conservative and i was building i was in charge of an lgbt community outreach effort to build more lgbt safe places um and so we ended up getting the battle creek county or the, the calhoun county uh commission to write a ordin or to write a proclamation which then led to an ordinance and so it was really great but it was really scary and one of my biggest allies that i brought was the naacp And I've always been in support of the NAACP from high school. And when I went to Battle Creek, I realized it was extremely segregated by race. And so I was taught from Planned Parenthood how to to do community outreach, and I started to go to all the NAACP meetings. I would just sit in the back and just be there to support, and I was very mindful of the space that I took up. Eventually someone came over to me and was like, hi, you know, I want to welcome you here. I joined that day the NAACP at Battle Creek, and we started talking. Um, And he was like, I totally support gay people. Unfortunately, like, I don't think a lot of NAACP people would. He was like, the national does, but the people in Battle Creek might not be. And I was like, that sounds, okay, I get that, but you do, and you're the president, so you have the ability to steer what happens. And he was like, I agree with you. So after working with him and volunteering for some events, then he kind of came around, um, and it was an amazing relationship. He ended up, his wife ended up. Um, doing really good things with the city commission. She got on the commission. I think she ran for mayor. I believe when I left, she did get mayor. Um, But they were in support of LGBT. Ever since we built that together with them, they have been in support of LGBT ever since in Battle Creek. They helped do the first pride. They They helped so much. And I think part of that was just sitting down and saying, look, you might be straight, I might be gay, but we're both people of color and, like, Let's talk about doing this together. And they were all for it, and it worked beautifully. So sometimes you just got to, like, work with people, (laughs) even if you think nothing's going to happen. Some really amazing things can. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, in full disclosure, um,
0: Uh I have
1: been on the board of uh, affirmations, I want to say twice, Um, and I was on the board And I know you're about to celebrate the 10th year anniversary of that building. I was on the board about the time that we were looking at building the building. We were building the building. The building got built. And at that point in time, there was some conversation about adding the T. To the Uh point where I can recall during Ferndale Pride, um, Rachel Crandall, and they they had petitions uh, to sign to sort of say, you can't just like have programs for trans people. It has to be our center too. And right. at the next board meeting by a former executive director being called out because I had signed the petition. Now, 10 years later, here you are. <laughs> you're, Thank you're you for that, that, by the way. You know, well, uh you know, well, you know, it's, it, you know what? Either you stand up for what you believe in or you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So so here you are at Affirmations, your program, um, and it has its history. And I'll tell you, I mean, and, and everything has an evolution, I mean, there was the yes. thing that it was the wrong side of eight mile and would, yep. you know, I mean, there's, there's, and which still goes on. I talked to Dave Coulter and there's still issues about which side of eight mile and being a welcoming and accepting place to everyone. But here you are. When you came into into affirmations, did you feel, were you concerned? Were you concerned yes. that you were going to be put in the trans box?
2: Yes. When I came into Affirmation, so I had experience with Affirmations before. When I, I actually uh, volunteered there in the youth program when Laura Sorensen was running the youth program, and I got trained through her, which was like probably 05, 06. It was a long time ago. And I remember it was interesting. All the youth were of color, most of the staff were Mm -hmm. not, and I Mm -hmm. called that out. I was very honest with Laura, like, okay, like, why are all the youth being chaperoned by only white people? Like, where where are their mentors? And she was like, you're 100% correct. She was like, I believe that, and Laura did at that time, Um, and I think that it took a lot of people to push affirmations and other orgs um, to a place where they where they were held accountable to have people on staff that looked like the people they were serving and so when I when I reached out and I got the job at affirmations, I was a youth coordinator three years ago, and I was scared because during that time, affirmations was in a very rough transition. that was the time that they had the interim um, executive director for a really long time, and mm-hmm. it was scary there like everything was scary, just we didn 't know what was happening to the future, but I know that my role was to make sure that those those young children those babies. Felt safe and they felt supported and empowered, and that's what I focused on. And to be honest, when I first got there, I didn't have a lot of power. My voice was very dim in the back, and I never would have thought in a million years that I would have been program director. It was mm-hmm. nice to see when I got there. Johnny Jenkins was program director, so it was nice to see a black man that I worked with, because um, he was an ARCUS. When I he actually gave Planned Parenthood the ARCUS grant that allowed me to become. Liliana the professional. Um, so I had worked with him in Kalamazoo. So it was interesting to see him in Detroit now. Um, I had worked with Dave in Kalamazoo, but we're also, we, we also went to U of M Flint together, Dave Garcia. So I had a connection with a lot of the people of color there. And I would tell Johnny, like, I am the only trans person here, and I'm really far down on the totem pole. Like, I need you to go up to bat for me. And he did. And he always made sure that my voice felt safe, but I also knew that if it wasn't for him, my voice would have never been heard. So I had to make sure that I had those allies. Um, and then eventually I think that affirmations just got head-on with the accountability, like you absolutely need to hire people and it has to make sense in what you're doing. And um, when Darius came on um, as executive director, he moved me up to manager. Um, and then when Susan came, I was moved up to director when there was a spot. Um, and, of course, I had to apply and I had to interview for all of that. But it was it was good be, to feel because I felt like they gave me the position because not just because, but because I deserved it, because I worked hard for it. And I will say that I honor affirmations because affirmations allows me to have a very strong voice. I am a leader. I shape the way the organization looks. And I've never, ever, ever been questioned um, about my leadership style that that made me feel like it was because of my gender. I really, truly feel like now more than ever before I am honored for who I am and my gender experience, um, and and, and there's, we're going into a path of making sure that other people, that other programs that we're shaping policy so that more people can get employed, that more people can get the services that we offer. Um, and, and part of that was, was me pushing. When I got a voice, I'm like, nope we need to be not racist. So we wanted I wanted to hire people. We're we're now finally doing a Muslim prayer space. And so mm. it 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 became to the point where affirmations allowed the people that wanted to change it for the better to actually do so.
1: So, did you ever have that Obama moment when someone <laughs> asked you, either someone trans has said to you that you're not doing enough for trans or someone who is not trans said, oh, you're only doing things for trans? Yes. And usually,
2: you know where I get that the most? I get that within the trans community. I get, and, and really because within the trans community, there's a lot of division. There's a lot of beauty and sisterhood and brotherhood and all of that, but there's also a lot of division. And because I started, help start with many great people, trans sisters of color, I noticed that. A lot of people who are so for trans rights really are only for white mm-hmm. trans rights. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people that go to everything that's at Affirmations, everything that's in Royal Oak and Oakland County, but I never see them at any R events. Across cross 8 Mile. And so I, and I've heard people say, like, well, how come you don't support trans people? Why are you not at whatever event? And I always have to respond to, well, why don't you support trans people? Because you're never at the events that I have either. When we're at Palmer Park, you're, I never see you there. Where are mm-hmm. you at? And so I get that quite often. I, get a, I also get people trying to police the way that I'm trans, um, I've had a lot of white trans people tell me I can't don't use the word tranny, which offends me because I've been trans since I'm six, seventeen. If I want to use that word, that's my word to use, and like no one can stop that. So I do get a lot of pushback about who I am and how I advocate, um, and and I and of course I'm liberal, but there are some things that I'm like, well, I believe this, and I think sometimes that shakes some trans people. Um, And it's just really interesting. I sometimes have an opinion from where I came from that differs so much from people now like for instance passability there's a really big thing going against passability which I believe that anyone should be able to be how you want to look or be or that's you but there's also the thing about passability people forget and it's about survival and I remember when I was growing up if I was unpassable I would have been beat up in my in my high school mm-hmm. I would have been beat up in my and so I think people forget about that and so I always talk about it like no I wanted to be passable and I still do because I live off six mile in Woodward and I want to make sure, or Six Mile of Livernois, I want to make sure that I'm not getting beat up just because I'm going to get a fruit juice. Like, I want to make sure that I'm okay, and sometimes passability means that, and I have a lot of trans people that push back against that. Like, don't tell people to be passable, you're, you're pushing up against the system, and it's difficult. It, it gets really difficult. I have people that tell me I don't do enough, and I have people that tell me I do too much, and they need to sit down and let other people do it.
1: Right, you know, and that seems to be like a forever problem. Because I know years ago when I was on the HRC board, and we and transgender Michigan was doing Transgender Day of Remembrance. We were going to do a panel around that, and they did it. Wanted to do it at MCC Church, and it was like one year it had been all all white people. So this year, you know, it was like, well, why don't you invite someone who's of color? And it was like, Well, Michelle, can you invite someone? Well, you know, if you're you know okay, but we got someone. We got someone. And she was beautiful and it was wonderful. But even lately when I was I had interviewed and talked to some people and it was like, Well, what are you doing? Are you inviting? Are you engaging, you know, with trans right. community of color? And they were saying, Well, if they wanted to come and you know, they'd show them how to do <laughs> resumes And if they wanted to, you know, change, you know, how they were, I'm going to like, well, wait a minute. What about accepting them where they are and building community? And and it's just like mind boggling to me that here, you know, with all of this stuff, with trans people getting killed almost every day. I mean, now Mm -hmm. through through the beauty of the internet, you sort of see it. And this continues to happen that, you know, here we still have this going on yeah and and that's why you know segue um which i i like when i started to see trans sisters of color because i mean i know you i've known breathe like forever and you are you again i sort of saying this is us this is our lives this is who we are we have a strong voice we mm-hmm. aren't just going to take it we're we're advocating for ourselves and we're pushing boundaries how did you become the founding mo- one of the founding mothers? And what was that conversation? I mean, which is perfect because you know you've got, um, like I said, it's always black and brown names, mostly black and brown names on Transgender Day of Remembrance. And trans yep. sisters of color had sort of like you know you're gonna remember us other than that day in November. Yes. So,
2: so I had I've I've known because. There's not a lot of trans people of color in the activist world, unfortunately, that are invited to spaces. So the ones that are in the metro Detroit, Michigan area, um, we know I know them. I know a lot of them. And I actually know a lot of girls all over the country. And so one day Brie came up to me, Brie and Yaya came up mm-hmm. to me and said we're doing like we want you to help us create this organization like we want to uplift trans voices of color we need latina trans voices particularly because in the united states the people that are getting killed are black trans women the people in the world that are getting killed are latina trans women and and she and they said we want to make this very clear it's for people of color and we need a space we need space for latina trans women and so I had honored Brie and all of the HIV work that she was doing. I honored Yaya and all the education work she was doing. So I knew it would be a good fit. And then I don't even remember what happened after that. It just started happening really quickly. And then we just, then all of a sudden we had a fiduciary and then we were in business. Um, it happened really quick and it had, there was a lot of conversation. There was a lot of three- and four-24-hour working meetings, and it, it just... And it happened. It was beautiful and ironic. It happened in Palmer Park on Six Mile and Woodward, and we were talking about it, and when we were talking about it, our dream was to build either a community center or a homeless shelter for trans women, for trans people in the Palmer Park area. And so it was just beautiful how... That was our space that we became to be um, together.
1: Now, do you think that because of Michigan, you know, we're everywhere? Well, you know, like where is it? Um, where is Tasha Ruby? Is that in Washington D.C.?
2: Um, okay. Yeah, either New York or D.C. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, I was talking to Monica Roberts. I mean, she's a she's bad during Hurricane mm-hmm. Harvey. During Hurricane Harvey, we are talking, and she is at a Latina center that was providing a safe space, especially for Latina trans women, but also for undocumented people, yep. recognizing, and, and actually they opened up for everybody, recognizing that all of these people, that if you went into what was supposed to be the place to go for shelter, that you could be discriminated, attacked, whatever, just because of who you are. These places have like a very strong, you know. So it's a separate now. But here you're talking about a center right off Palmer Park, and I've right. seen some buildings, girl. Um, Me I, too. Off Palmer Park <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that where that would be just for people of color. Is that yes. because of of the way that Michigan is sort of laid out that we don't have like, you know, especially Southeast Michigan.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of the service, it's so ironic to me. For for LGBT people, there are some great LGBT orgs in the city of Detroit. Unfortunately, the money is not always pumped in the city of Detroit. It's pumped in the outer skirts of Detroit for Detroit residents, which is so weird. And so we wanted to be very intentional that... Six Mile and Woodward represents a lot for trans women of color. For a lot of trans women, um, we have to engage in sex work. I have engaged in sex work in the the park on Six Mile and Woodward. For many of us, we've experienced discrimination from the police. We've experienced violence at the hands of dates and the police at the Mm -hmm. Six Mile and Woodward. when there are a lot of times when there are brutal murders that are going on with our trans or even other LGB brothers and sisters of color, it happens in Palmer Park. So, I we wanted to make sure that we were going to where the space that needed safety and not let's get away from this space to be safe. Like, no, let's be safe in this space, and that's what we wanted to be intentional about.
1: Okay, well, we're going to take our second break, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about about that um, as we come into the home stretch. So this is Collections by Michelle Brown, and my guest is Liliana Reyes, and we will be right back. And we're back. Liliana, you know, you talk about um, the area and sex work. Mm -hmm. And what is being done to really talk about sex work, to lift the stigma, to recognize the reality of it, to recognize that to, to acknowledge and to say that even if someone is engaged in sex work, there's no excuse for them to be brutalized, murdered, attacked, victimized on the street, and then again by the police department. That they are, you know, what is being done to address that?
2: Yeah. So I and many other people believe in holistic advocacy. And so there are a lot of different routes that can be taken when dealing with sex work. You can talk to the general law enforcement, which are the people like police. You can talk to legislators with about about policies about what law looks like. You can go to talk to the sex workers themselves. Like there's a lot of things that you can do and we try to do it all. So, and I try to do it all with different organizations because unfortunately there's not like a one-stop shop. So I work with a lot of people. Um, We have Detroit Police, uh, Danny Woods, does a community conversation in Palmer Park that is in response to the high level of sex trafficking and sex work going on in the park. And so part of it is making sure that people see that good things are happening there, and with sex work or not, you can come to those conversations, and it kind of breaks down in hopes to break down that stigma between police, law enforcement, and the the people um, on the streets. The other difference is the people that we're talking to are not only the police officers, but they're the people in charge. So when when we see the faces, we can say, this police officer assaulted this girl, this police officer had sex with this girl, and you said you were going to do something. So it's about holding police, Highland Park, Detroit, all accountable, um, all the way up from the chief to the, to the low-ranking officer. Um, so that's one thing that we do. The second is to make sure that people feel um, justified and people feel like someone's got their back. So we work with Equality Michigan to make sure that when people do feel victims of police or other systems that they have a space and so Janice works with those victims to make sure that they're, they're legally upheld as citizens regardless of whatever act they're committing. Um, that's another. Trans Sisters of color helps financially. We work with a lot of trans women to give some financial support um, for whatever. Like we have a lot of unrestricted dollars that we're able to say, you got kicked out of your house, let us help you pay for a few nights at a hotel and then look for a place. Um, so there's, there are a lot of different ways that we're trying to work um, within that because we, we want to do it at a whole lot of lo- different levels. And so that can include lobbying. It can, inc- it can include community organizing because sometimes there are organizations around Palmer Park that are for the betterment of the area, but sometimes they're really transphobic and sometimes even a little mm-hmm. racist. And so we w- try to work with them. Um, and sometimes that means working to push them back, and that that's sometimes just what it is. So we do try to do a lot of different levels so that people feel like people are have their back.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think that that's so important because, I mean, I often say particularly because they're black and brown girls, so black and brown mm-hmm. women. And we have, you look at Detroit, I mean, which is predominantly black and brown people, and, you know, that sense of community, like if you were – especially around there, I have, I have had conversations with people who are around the Palmer Park area who, where if they were to see little Sally schoolgirl on her way to the school bus and someone uh, was catcalling her, trying to assault her, they would, they would immediately come to action. But if they see someone who they just think might be LGB and especially T, it's like, well, you know what they're doing, and they'll right. turn their back. And, you know, I know, I mean, at, once I was at Netroots Nation and there was someone who was talking about it and she said, you know, you don't have to, but if, if some people would say, well, in this neighborhood, we're going to put our light on. And if you see that porch with the light on, it's a no judgment thing that if you're in trouble, you can run up on that porch or, and someone will open the door. Or if you drive down the street and you see something that looks funny, you would just roll down the window and say, are you okay, sis? Because sometimes just that knowledge that that this is part of your community, and it's like, what do we, I mean, it sounds like, you know, there's all of these pieces, but, you know, how do we get our community to recognize that these are someone's children? This could be your child, and that we have a responsibility to care for our children, to care for our, our women, to care for our sisters and brothers. You know, I
2: that that's a really good question. And I think the difficult part to that is I don't know. I think that mm-hmm. I definitely, what, to me what that means is that the people don't find trans lives valuable because they've decided that for whatever reason, specifically the trans girls that are doing sex work, that specifically their lives aren't valued and, and they, don't, they don't need to be upheld because of whatever situation they, they found themselves in. And I see that playing out on a lot of levels. I see that playing out when we have ridiculous conversations about why trans people can't use the bathroom because you don't Mm. value their lives. When trans women are murdered and the people who murder them, nothing happens to them because we don't value their lives. And so it's interesting that we see that hit a lot of different levels and we can't even be, compassionate enough to say that someone lost their lives before someone says, well, did she trick someone? Or was it mm. a date? Or was she trying to rob them? And when you make those kind of excuses for violence, then what you're saying is her life is not valuable, and someone else's life is. And that is that's a problem. That's why we see so many trans women of color being murdered because nobody cares. Because they're just those people. They're, you know, they're just the sex workers, so who cares if there's one less of them? And that's really the way that people feel, even LGBT people. And so, like, what changes that? I don't know. And I try to do a lot of education, but I just hear people say, well, I mean, if she's sex works, like, why? I mean, if they're having sex and she calls rape, like, that's not okay. And then I'm like, no, but, like, it, it, it is okay that she calls rape because no one should be raped. And regardless if you're doing sex work or not, like getting money for sex that has nothing to do with being taken advantage of. And, and, and it's weird because when I tell people I used to do sex work, they kind of go, oh, well, but you have a degree now. And I'm like, no, I had a degree when I was doing sex work. Hmm. And I think they're minds boggled because for people, it's a certain type of person that does sex
1: work. Hmm. <laughs> wow. You know, I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, it's like there's so much work to do, uh, and there continues to be so much work to do, and we all need to just sort of step up our game, you know, to be Mm -hmm. more human. So in the few minutes that we have left, um, what's going on? Okay, if people wanted to get in touch with you um, Mm -hmm. for Trans Sisters of Color, um, how would they do that? or if they wanted to get in touch with you just to find out and maybe you can elaborate on some of the program services that are being offered at affirmations
2: yeah so my email is super easy i'm gonna give you my affirmations email because it's the one that i check the most and it's (laughs) l ray it's l reyes r-e-y-e-s that's my last name at goaffirmations.org. so affirmations offers an array of programs we have over 24 support and discussion groups that range anywhere from NAAA to religious discrimination groups, to trans groups, to elderly groups, to youth groups. And they are peer-led, peer-supported. And they they can, like, we have some new ones coming up. We're going to be starting a lesbian group. We have a book and discussion group. We have um, some non-traditional Jewish groups going on. So, really, it's our program and support groups allow for people to identify who they are and identify a need in their community that they can fill. Um, and so while all that's going on, we have art gallery programs. We have tons of amazing youth programs. Um, we have a gallery space. We have a building that we allow people in six days a week, 12 hours a day, free computers, free Wi-Fi, a free space just be, regardless of who you are, what you have, you can just be authentically you at Affirmations. Um, We do a lot of workforce development, and we're going to try to do more workforce with trans people and people coming out of prisons and people going through substance issues. We do substance work. We do a lot of tobacco cessation work. We do a lot of education and training to organizations and health systems so that LGBT people can get competent medical care. Um, We do a lot of HIV testing and STI testing. We partner with Adult Wellbeing Services, Oakland County, Unified Matrix to offer those services for free. Um, Affirmations has a space where anyone can do almost anything. We allow people to envision what they want us to do, but we ask that they help us lead it too. Um, And all our programs are very intentional, which means that every single program was fine tooth combed with, is it racially sensitive? Is it trans-sensitive? Is it uh, trauma-informed care? And so we think about all of that. We think about race and racism. We think about power, privilege, and oppression. We think about ability. And we try to make sure that when we build programs, it's all that is taken into account so that we never have to have an issue um, where someone is like, "You didn't think about me," and if they do, we make immediate changes.
1: Well, Liliana, I want to ask someone who has been involved with affirmations from back in the day when we were thinking about the building and what it could be. I want to thank you for the work that you're that you're you. doing and for making it that space because that was the space. When we sat around a very cramped table talking <laughs> about making this this building was the space we wanted it to be, you know, and, and often it isn't a direct path we had to take a few twists twist and turns, mm-hmm. but um, it's getting there. And yes. I want to thank you for being on board and I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk with me and we're going to do this again real soon. I
2: love you so much, Michelle. Thank you.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Now you go back and try and enjoy the rest of this beautiful day.
2: Oh, I am, before winter gets here.
1: (laughs) Uh, I know, I know. Diana, Liliana, (laughs) Liliana, thank you. And, you know, like I said, I know. uh, Usually I say that you're my sister from another mother, but I think our mothers were sisters. (laughs) So we're real sisters. (laughs) I know. 'Cause there's so many things that, you know, as you talked it was like, That's my story
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Well, thank you again and thank I will you. see you real soon at affirmation.
2: Yay, thank you
1: so much and I'll talk to you later. Okay, dear. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I wanna again I thank our guest today, which is Liliana Reyes, who is the Program Service Director at Affirmations, for being my guest here on Collections by Michelle Brown. I want to thank you, our listening audience. You can listen to the show each week by following Collections by Michelle Brown on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. That's all for this episode. Join me next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual, living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you and good night.